distinct pleasure to be able to bring Bill up to us to uh, to bless us with his uh, discussion tonight on contentment. And uh, as we've all discussed on this topic a couple times in various uh, different panel discussions, I think it's time for uh, to build a spike it for us this evening. So uh, thanks a lot, Bill, and we'll just bring him up. I'm going to talk about contentment and uh, in God's own perfect way it, from what uh, Steve shared with us today. Um, so uh, let's get into contentment a little bit, shall we? And let's pray. Lord God, uh, I thank you, Steve. I thank you for these men. Thank you for the richness of your word and how sovereignly you disperse your word throughout the world and how you cause it to grow in the heart of men. Open our hearts tonight and teach us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I came across a passage one day when I was going through uh, the Old Testament, I was just reading it, studying something about Abraham, and I came to this passage in Genesis 25, verse 8, it said, if Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. And it was that last part of the phrase that just gripped me, satisfied with life. And I sat there and I asked God, I said, Lord, you know, I don't want to die a bitter old Christian man. What do I do so that I can be able to say on my deathbed that I'm satisfied with life? And I suspect that there's at least uh, a couple of men here tonight who, and I'm speaking to you specifically, whoever you are, uh, you've got issues in your life that you're struggling with, and contentment seems about as far away from you as the moon right now. And uh, to be able to say that I, I lived a long and I'm satisfied with life. How do we get there from where we are right now? And we look, we don't know whether you and I will be here next year or even whether we will be here tomorrow. But how do we get from wherever we are going to wind up from here, how do we get there being able to say that I was satisfied with life? And so that's the goal of my uh, talk this morning. And I'm going to start off walking us through the old, some parts of the Old Testament 
that deal with the exact opposite of contentment. Complaining, griping, bitter contention. And then I'm going to wind up at some parts of the New Testament. But to start us off, turn with me for a moment to Romans 15.4. This verse has been mentioned several times already. Romans 15.4 For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Now when Paul is writing this and he's talking about the scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. Right? Remember the New Testament had not yet been canonized. For whatever was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And then we know from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all scripture is given or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So first of all, let's quickly take a look at Abraham when he dies. And it's so easy to take some of these things out of context. And just let me share with you some of the highlights of uh, Abraham's life. Um, God promised him a land that he never fully owned. And all his life he heard the promise that I am going to give this land to you as far as you walk around it. But they were never more than a small family. Twice he was faced by droughts so severe he had to leave that land and travel elsewhere. On each of those two occasions, he let his wife be taken by the king of that land to be that king's wife. He did that twice. He was childless for most of his life, although his burning desire was to have a son. Finally, when he was 100 years old, he has a son. And before the son turns 20, God tells him to go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice Isaac on the mountain. His wife, Sarah, blamed him for the turmoil in their family because of the birth of his first son, Ishmael, by the Egyptian slave girl, Hagar. Although it was Sarah's idea for Abraham to take Hagar as his wife, Sarah rightly blamed him for doing it. 
He never obtained possession of the land that God promised him. And then when God confirmed his covenant with him in Genesis 15 and 17, he told him that your descendants will be slaves in a foreign land for over 400 years. Those are some of the highlights of Abraham's life. And yet the Bible tells us that he died an old man and satisfied with life. How did that happen? I'm going to walk us a bit through some of the highlights of God's liberation of the Hebrew people from Egypt. And their liberation is full of periods of bitter complaining. And it is important for us to look at some aspects of that, of those complaints, to understand biblically what contentment is, how we have it, and how we keep it. So first, I want to take us to Exodus chapter 15. And I'm going to start at verse 22, Exodus 15, 22. Now, the setting is this. God has freed the people from Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptian army has been swallowed up and killed in the sea. And... God has told Moses that he is to go out into the wilderness of Sinai and God will lead them to the promised land. Verse 22 of chapter 15. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now, that scene comes immediately or, or within three days after the following. The people are now on the other side of the Red Sea. They have seen Pharaoh and all of his army swallowed up in the sea. They were moments away from being utterly slaughtered, and they turn around and they see their pursuing enemies totally destroyed by God without them lifting a finger in defense. And Moses has extemporaneously exulted in the first song in Scripture. And he sings about the mightiness of God and how God has delivered them miraculously from the leading power on the earth at that time. And after he finishes, Moses' 
older sister Miriam spontaneously bursts into song herself. And Miriam, this is verse 20, and Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dancing and Miriam answered them singing, sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider he has hurled into the sea. And then within three verses it says, and the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? I know I have been there, gentlemen. God has given me some great blessing or, or, or something has happened and I'm praising God the next minute. And then I get a bad result in a case or an unexpected bill comes through or something happens and I'm going, God! Why? I know that hasn't happened to anybody here but me. <laughs> and so I'm teaching you stuff that's totally irrelevant, but bear with me. Humor me. And they murmured. And then we go to ch chapter 16, verse 2. Then the people set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to Moses and Aaron, Oh, that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now, remember that this is the same people who groaned before the Lord night and day to be saved. And God said to Moses, I have heard the groaning of This is the same people who were slaves. They had no rights. They had no status. They were held in contempt. Pharaoh said, I want all the newborn baby males thrown into the red, um, um, thrown into the Nile. And now the people having been liberated, not only liberated from Egypt, but liberated with all the wealth of Egypt, saying, I wish we could go back. Slavery was so good. God heard the first complaint and he gave them water. She heard the second complaint here in Exodus 16, 2, and that's when he began to give manna every day. Manna from heaven. Then Exodus 17, 3. Then all the congregation of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me 
Why do you test the Lord? Since Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Now that's how angry. So this is not a, a little conversation in the wilderness. The people are milling around Moses. And I don't know if you've I don't know if anybody here has ever been in a setting where people are this far away from killing you. Killing you because they are mad as heck and at that moment they hate you. Well that's Moses. And he's telling God, they are this far away from stoning me. And that's when God tells Moses to take your staff, hit the rock, and out will come water. And that's exactly what happened. Now turn with me over to Numbers, chapter 20. This is some time later. Then the sons of Israel, the whole congregation, came to the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. And now Miriam died there and was buried there. This is years later. And there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves against Moses and Aaron. The people thus contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. I won't even get into that story. Why have you brought the Lord's assembly into this wilderness for us and our beasts to die? And why have you made us come up from Egypt to bring us into this wretched place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there water to drink. The place they were talking about is the promised land. You told me it would be X, and it ain't X. We want Egypt instead. And Miriam, before she died, saw that Moses had a Cushite or black wife. And she and Aaron are upset about this, and they grumble against Moses. Who do you think you are, in effect, they're saying? Who do you think you are? God has also spoken to us and through us. When God sends, uh, or Moses, God allows Moses to send spies into the promised land right before this incident with the second time of water to spy out the land, and they come back with a report. And their basic report is, we're going to get killed. <laughs> the men over there are huge. We are going to get slaughtered if we go there. And the people are so upset. Turn, turn to Numbers 14. The people are so... Oh, um, Winston, the red heifer is the Numbers 19. Uh, but Numbers 14... Now, after the unfaithful spies give their report, and each one gives a worse report than the predecessor, 
It says, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Now, where are they? They are at the edge of the Jordan, about to go across into the promised land. All right? This is what God has promised them. And the spies came back saying, it is true. The land is rich. It is full of milk and honey. Grapes we have brought back. God was truthful about that. But if we go there, we're going to get slaughtered. So I don't care what God told you, there is no way we're going to take this land. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. They are at the edge of the promised land. They are at the edge. And the circumstances seem too great and they curse God's promise to them and it goes on in that same chapter in verse 11 and the Lord says to Moses how long will this people spurn me and how long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them and I will make you Moses into a nation greater and mightier than they and Moses of course acting as an intercessor pleads with God not to do that please God and he gives various arguments that all relate to God's glory and the, and the, and the holiness of his own name not to do that so I want to share with you and hope we can interact around some observations about discontent, okay? First observation, discontent is complaining against God. And if we don't, and see, the, it is interesting that every time the people complained, it says that they contended with Moses. They complained to Moses. And, uh, Miriam complained, she complained, she and Aaron complained to Moses. And the incident um, that the other Hebrews were talking about why, wouldn't it be better if we had perished like our brothers? They're talking about Korah and his followers who were upset with the divine order that God had given for the social structure of Israel, where Moses would be the leader, Aaron would be the high priest, 
the Levites would perform all the, um, the religious duties the, uh, around the sacrifices and the feast days, etc. And Korah and his followers said, wait a minute. Aren't we Levites? Don't we come from the same tribe as you? God speaks to us and through us. Who are you? He was saying to Moses there, that you would exalt yourselves over us. And God told, God told Moses, step aside. <laughs> step aside. Because God understood and Moses understood that their discontent was with God himself. And, and the people might have thought that they could get away from the true issue by going to Moses and Aaron and blaming them for leading them out of Egypt. So what we have to understand is that when we complain, we are complaining against God. So we, for example, might say like Adam, the woman that you gave me <coughs> created this problem. It's not my fault. The, God, you gave me Eve. I woke up. <coughs> Discontent is complaining against God. Second, contentment is not possible without understanding and accepting both the sovereignty and the goodness of God. Without, <coughs> without understanding the sovereignty and the goodness of God, we will complain to him about our circumstance. And we will do it continually. But we will say, we will code it like the Hebrew people did in Israel. We will say, um, my child is headstrong and won't obey. Or the child may say, my dad is overbearing and won't give me enough freedom. Or my wife won't give me enough affection. Or my boss doesn't appreciate anything. It doesn't matter. And, and contentment, until we come to the point that we know that God is sovereign in our lives and that he bends all events out of his goodness, for our eternal interests, we will, we will not know contempt. Next, observation. Contentment must be viewed from an eternal, not a temporal perspective. In other words, to understand contentment, you have to take the long view. What does a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? You will not be able to experience contentment in a biblical sense if the exercise thereof 
is evidence of your estrangement from God. Let me give you an example. I remember going to a retreat once, maybe about four or five years ago, and Walt Hendrickson said something that just shook me to my core. Because someone was asking him something about the sovereignty of God and, and you know, when I get to God, would I be able to ask him about why he did this or why he did that in my life or why he let this happen or why he let that happen. And his response, and never will forget it, he said, gentlemen, that's when you know you're about to get stuck. <laughs> he said, gentlemen, the only thing that people in hell will think about is their missed opportunity to know God. They're not going to be asking about why I lost my daughter, why I went bankrupt, why I got... I was blind, why this, why that? Everything will be instead, shh, there was a chance to know God and I blew it. So, you, something that may cause you pleasure now, if in your spirit you know that it is hell, simply cannot be the basis of contentment. You understand? If you know that this thing that you are doing is sin, it cannot produce contentment in a biblical sense because you also must know that you will pay for it. And it's uh, one of the many men that Walt has blessed uh, in his ministry is Lee Yi. And I heard Lee on a tape, I didn't hear him say this live, that he had been offered, um, he, he was working with a, a brokerage house in uh, Hong Kong, and one of his wealthiest clients was very pleased with some trading that Lee had done on his behalf, had made him quite a bit of money. And so he wanted to reward Lee by taking him on a junket uh, frankly, among the best whorehouses in Asia. And uh, he would pay all the expenses. And Lee told him he couldn't go, and the man said, why? And he said, I can't afford it. And the man was saying, well, but you don't understand, I'm paying everything. I'm paying for everything. Well, what Lee was saying was that spiritually, he could not afford this junket because of what he would have to pay for when he stood before God. You understand? So if you do not view contentment from an eternal perspective, you will not know contentment. Another example. There's a wonderful passage in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6 where uh, the, the writer says, it is better to go to a funeral than to a party and to a house of mourning than to a place of feasting. Well, why is that? Because when you go to a place of mirth, that's not a place of, a place of mirth, you don't think eternally. You're just having too much fun. Pass the ribs! <laughs> There is little eternal benefit in that, however good the ribs might be. 
But when you go to a funeral, there's a tendency for you to think, what will happen to me when I die? Don't you? You begin to reflect on, well, you know, I could die tomorrow. What, what does that mean to me? And so from a temporal perspective, it's much better to go to a party. But from an eternal perspective, there's more value to us to go to a funeral, to go to a place that causes us to look at my, our mortality and ask, where do I stand with God right now? Contentment is the same thing. If contentment is not viewed from an eternal perspective, we will not know contentment. Next observation. Contentment is influenced more by our view of God and his promises than by our circumstances. Contentment is influenced more by our view of God and his promises than by our circumstances. If you, now I'm not saying it's uninfluenced by our circumstances, but I'm saying if you want true contentment, it has to be more influenced by who God is and what he has promised than what our circumstances are. If your business is going belly up, if your child is on drugs, if your father is an alcoholic, if your mother has never been able to say to you a kind word, there's always that little bit of criticism. If you're a senior citizen and you're worried about your fixed income as inflation rises, and you keep looking to your circumstances and make your contentment dependent on your circumstances, you will never be content. You will always wrestle with, and contentment will always be just out of reach. Because as you know, uh, when I began as a trial lawyer, God blessed me with just a stream of successes. A stream of successes. And uh, I really didn't know what failure was. And I may have, I know I've shared this with some guys before. Um, I was, uh, oh, and by the way, if it's not obvious to you now, you're blind. I am not a spiritual giant. I hope that's obvious. <laughs> Please don't embarrass me anymore by using that phrase. Um, I'm a sinner saved by grace, struggling every day. So here I am, 10 years, I've never lost a trial. And with godly humility, <laughs> I approach my wife and I say to her, God has truly blessed me. <laughs> I, it was 12 years. In 12 years, I've never lost a trial. And I'm my wife, as a godly wife, to chime in and say, well, of course, Bill. You're a godly man. And God is rewarding you for your godliness. <laughs> and she started out the right way. She said, of course. And I began to settle down in my chair to hear this 
wave of praise, praise card that I would humbly receive and give God all the glory. She said, of course, God can't trust you with a failure. He knows that your faith is too weak. I'm, I've never been. I've never been more hurt by my wife than on that night. That statement. I'm not kidding you. I could not. I was speechless. And I and I and I I, I became so angry. I couldn't speak. And my anger was rooted in the fact that what she said was exactly true, and I knew it. What she was selling me in a way is, Bill, your contentment is so tied to your circumstance, it has very little to do with God. You're content if you win, and you're upset if you fail. And you think you know God. I tell you, it took me a while to forgive my wife for that statement. Then I had to repent. My attitude was ugly. I have nothing to be proud of. It took me years before I could get to the point where I could say, God, I'm starting this trial. Your will be done. Just help me do the best I can, but I leave the outcome in your hands. It took me years to pray that. And when the first time I prayed it, I had to confess to God. I said, God, I'm praying this, but I don't mean it. <laughs> I'm being real with you. I, I'd, like to, I'd like to put on a front for you, but I'm being real with you. I'm saying, God, I don't really mean this. But I want to mean it. I want to mean it. And I don't know how to get there from here. And I just, so you do what you have to do. And I said, but if you can, if you can, be as merciful as possible in the past. <laughs> and God took me at my word. And I start. And the issue, gentlemen, was, well, where does my contentment lie? Do I have to win a case in order to be content? And my wife would say to me, you ought to just make a list of every good thing God has done for you. Make a list. And it got to the point where I could say, honestly, thy will be done. I don't know whether, help me do the best job I can, and I leave that results in your hands. And that is when I began to experience contentment in my practice, but not before. Next observation, faith and obedience are essential for contentment. I want to give you one concrete example because there are two men here 
to whom this directly applies. I don't know who you are, but I know that there are two men here. Not because anybody has told me anything. Don't worry, nobody's breaching any confidence. But I know that there are two men here for whom this applies. So Proverbs 5, verses 18 and 19, it says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Now let me just stop for just a minute. Now we know this is true practically, but there are, there are two guys here who are this far away from either being in an affair or leaving his wife. I don't know who you are. You're that, you're that far. You are not content with the woman that God has given you for whatever reason. And only faith and obedience are going to give you contentment in this area. Share another failure. I have more failures, gentlemen, than successes to share with you. My wife and I have been married 31 years. But in the 14th year of our marriage, uh, somewhere around the, the 13th and 14th year of our marriage, I was growing discontent. My wife wasn't meeting my needs. She wasn't ministering to me the way I thought she ought to minister to me. And I was growing increasingly dissatisfied with her to the point that I wanted to leave her. The problem was I knew that divorce was a sin. And the second problem was I needed and thrived on fellowship with Christian men. And I hung with a group of men who would rebuke me and potentially disfellowship me if I divorced my wife. And I felt boxed in. And I was angry because I was boxed in and too prideful to go to a brother and say, I have this spiritual dilemma. Help me. Because I had this good front. But God in his mercy sent a man who shared Proverbs 5, 18 and 19 to me who had no idea what was in my heart. He, nobody knew because by all external appearances. Dan and I had like the textbook Christian marriage. And, and when that guy quoted that verse, I said, where is that? And he opened it up and I read it. And like very shortly before that, like a day or two before that, God had led me to Psalm 37 verse 4 it said delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart commit your way to the Lord trust in him and he will do it now I had never read that verse to say delight in the Lord and he will give you what you want 
I had always understood that verse to say, delight yourself in the Lord and he will put in your heart right desires. So I took that and I took Proverbs 5, 18, 19 and I desperately hung on to them. And I prayed that every day. I said, dear God, cause me to rejoice in Dana. Cause me to treat her like the loving hind and a graceful doe. Cause me to be satisfied by her breasts at all times and to be exhilarated by her love. Please. I prayed that many times a day. Every single day, gentlemen. Every day, desperately. And one morning, after about three months of this, I woke up and Dana was sleeping beside me, oblivious to what was going on. And I was just overwhelmed with love for her. Just, I mean, it was, I, I was overcome. And that was 17 years ago. I look at a day and I still pray that. I don't pray it every day. I prayed it every day for about eight years. I pray it probably four days a week now. Nothing about Dana changed. Nothing about my circumstance changed. What changed was that I believed God and I obeyed him. Because he said to me, rejoice in the wife of your youth. I don't know how to do that, okay? God, you will give me the desires of my heart. That's what I want. I want to rejoice in her. I want to be satisfied with her. And gentlemen, I can honestly say today with great gratitude to God that I am exhilarated by my life. I am satisfied with that. I love her company. And it's not because I'm a good Christian man. It's because as a wretched sinner, God had mercy upon me and gave me grace. He gave me contentment because some man unwittingly gave me a verse that I latched onto in faith and that I prayed through in obedience. And so for you two guys, please, I'm, I'm begging you, no matter how bad you think it is with her, take these two verses, whoever you are, and pray them into your heart every day. Contentment is both, next observation, Contentment is both an expression of faith and an act of the will. Contentment is both an expression of faith and an act of the will. Have you seen in a, uh, a news flash like this? David Justice leaves Halle Berry. In in the. I mean, so it can't, it can't be that she doesn't have money, and it can't be that she's not good looking. What is it? What? Because I look, and I must be missing something. <laughs> but it's that, that's also, you know, um, the, the most common complaint of CEOs is they feel underappreciated. I know this sounds ironic. He makes a million dollars a year, got all the perks in the world, and, but it's true. Contentment is an expression of faith and an act of the will. You have to say, I choose to see God 
and trust that one, God is sovereign in my life. And two, that whatever he brings in my life will redound to my good. Romans 16, for all things work together for good to them that love God. Now, as he works out his sovereign purpose for his own glory, his glory, not my glory, his glory, it will benefit me. It will benefit me. Uh, and in John 15, 1, let's turn with that, that's the great pruning chapter. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, and every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear, what? More fruit. By, now hop over to verse 8. By this is my father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So when God is pruning, and you don't know when he's not, a, but if it hurts, he's pruning. Uh, a friend of mine named Ed Turley uh, has a wonderful wife who's a photographer, and she sent me, not knowing what I was going through recently, she sent me this incredible photograph of a vineyard where the, uh, the vines had just been pruned. And Ed and Marilee came to take Dana and I out to dinner, and he was explaining to me what the pruning process is like. Not Again, not knowing my circumstance. He said, Bill, you know what's amazing? When they go out there and prune, they cut back the branches so severely, I first thought, they're killing the, they're killing the vines. They're going to kill these vines. And, and he went to the vine dresser, and the vine dresser said, no, 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 we're not killing them. This way they will really produce abundant fruit. And if we don't prune it, the fruit that they produce will be it will it will be worthless. The less we prune them, the, the the less the value of the fruit. Gentlemen, only when we just trust God and we say, I choose to believe, are we going to be in a position to experience contentment? Now Let's turn to some of the New Testament part. Philippians 4.11. Paul says, I do not speak in respect of want or lacking, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am in, therewith to be content. State I'm in, therewith to, to be content. I have a little model, Bill McKeeran's model. Wherever I am, be there. Have you ever been at the office and you, you, you just wish you were at home relaxing with your wife and then you go home, relax with your wife and then you think of all the work that's piled up at your desk? <laughs> you understand? So my model is wherever I am, be there. So when I'm at work, I just dive in. When I'm at home, I just dive in. I'm practicing wherever I am, be there. Now, here's something that frightens me most of all. Well, one of the things that frightens me most of all. Turn with me, and I'd like somebody to grab a mic and read Numbers 11, verses 18 through 20. Numbers 11 
verses 18 through 20. Now let me set the stage. The people are mad because God's been giving them manna every day. And they basically said, I'm sick and tired of this food from heaven. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? We want meat, meat, meat! God says, okay. I want to give you meat until it comes out of your nose. You're going to hate the sight of me by the, by the end of 30 days. Now turn with me to Psalm 106 before I get into the next principle or the, a principle. Psalm 106, verse 15. Psalm 106, verse 15. If you're there, say amen. Amen. God gave them what they wanted, but brought leanness to their souls. Let me repeat that. God gave them what they wanted, but brought leanness to their souls. So here's, here's... the other observation. Since complaining is against God at its core, God may at times give you what you want and take away the ability to enjoy it. God has the sovereign power to give contentment or to withhold it. To give joy or to withhold it. You can get Susie and have it be the worst mistake you've ever had. You can get that new job that you just pushed John out the door to get. It'd be the worst job you've ever had in your life. You can climb that corporate ladder over other people's back and when you get up there at the top you realize it's a lousy place for you to be. Or you can get that brand new car or that new house and just, you know, you walk into it and you say, I should enjoy it. But I don't. Isn't that amazing? And he can turn around and give the guy next to you a dumpy little house, a little old car, He's just as happy and content with it. Turn with me for a moment to Ecclesiastes chapter 3.
And I'm going to read verses 12 and 13 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labors. It's the gift of God. It is the, to be able to eat and drink and see good is the gift of God. It's a gift. And then Ecclesiastes 5.18. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labors in which he toils under the sand during sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. So the irony is that our complaining is rejection of God and rebellion against him who is the only one who can enable us to be content with what we have. Proverbs 19:23 The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, and everything, let me repeat that, because I want to have, this is a test, I'm going to tell you right up front, it's a test. In the Greek, the word that's translated every means what? Every. <laughs> and everything give thanks why for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you not concerning Vince but me concerning me this is God's will you want to know what God's will for me rejoice in my circumstances doesn't say I can't pray to change my circumstances so long as I leave it to the sovereign God to say, no, I won't change them, or you have to wait. You, you, you see the difference? Please, questions, comments, thoughts? What's, what's the rest of Proverbs? Um, the one that I just read, uh, Proverbs 19, verse 23. No other questions, no comments? Okay, good. Now, <laughs> I want you to do something with me. I was hoping, I didn't pray for this, but I was hoping that you would have a question. I have a little time. What I would like you gentlemen to do is I want you to privately make a list of the things that you have been complaining about to God. Maybe you haven't complained to God, but you've been complaining about them. Make that list, and I want us to take, and my request is that we all be quiet. You don't look 
at your neighbor's paper and actually ask God to reveal to you an area where you have been complaining. An area in which you have been complaining. I actually want you to write it down. I don't want you to think about it and not write it. And I'm going to give us a solid five minutes, which... I want to say to you something, and then I want to finish with another little thing. You've got to keep that sheet of paper. Complaining and contentment go straight to the first and the last commandments. You shall have no other God before me, and thou shalt not covet. When we see that complaining challenges those very two commandments, we complain because we don't have what John has. We complain because we have something else before God. My reputation. Basically, I want my reputation. more important to me than God. So if God will fix my reputation, then I'll believe him. That's more important. It's just really important to understand how critical complaining is. And now I'd like you to take five minutes, and again, quiet. I'm asking everybody to be quiet. Take a moment before God, and I want you to confess the sin of complaining. Ask God to forgive you, and then thank him. Confess, repent, thank him. And then I'll close this. Okay? Me, uh, Our Father, we praise you for that you are ever gracious, loving, and kind in your dealings with us. We praise you that you have given us an eternal hope in Jesus Christ and that you have freed us from both the penalty for and attraction to sin. You have given us life in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for this day. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thanks, Algo. Okay, I need all of you to raise your right hand real quickly. Just raise your right hand. I promise to be back in my seat in five minutes and we start again. Thank you very much. Okay. Quick break. I need you back in your seats. Five to seven minutes, no talking. Just go to the bathroom, come on back. Five to seven.